0: The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Wire, The Americans. Some of my all-time favorite TV series have this in common. They used music brilliantly. Among current shows, Billions does it as well as any. Today, I've got the co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Billions, Brian Koppelman, and Mike Mills of REM, one of my favorite bands ever, and a band that's allowed their music to be used in all sorts of TV platforms. So, we'll get the producers and the artists' perspectives on how music amplifies the impact of the shows we love.
1: If you're lucky enough to get to mm-hmm. make stuff like this, you want every moment to just be, have maximum emotional impact. And you want to empty the toolkit. You know, you just want to leave it all out there and, and you want to just put every last bit of Thought, meaning, effort into it. And your record collection is just about the best weapon you have. Once you've cast it correctly with an incredible group of actors, and you know, you've the best craftspeople at every post, the last tool you have, the thing at the end, is your record collection
0: and your composer's score. Brian has used songs from REM in billions. We're both longtime REM fans. So I asked Brian, What R.E.M.'s view on lending their songs to such a wide range of TV shows might be. He said, you know Mike Mills, why don't you ask him? Great idea.
2: And Mike graciously agreed to be a guest, too. I mean, Shiny Happy People was a song, it was basically written for kids. It's like "Stand." You know, people go, oh, those are stupid, silly R.E.M. songs. Well, yeah, they're for children. You know, (laughs) I mean, adults can enjoy them, too, but they're primarily aimed at kids. Look at the videos. You know, those are... You know those are to appeal to children and that's and that's great so why the heck not do furry happy monsters on sesame street which was i think still one of the most popular things we ever did i get people still coming up to me on the street saying how much they still watch that with their kids as even as their and their kids are showing it for their kids now
0: coming up a really interesting conversation with mike mills but first brian koppelman before Billions became a big hit, Brian co-wrote the films Rounders and Ocean's Eleven with his creative partner David Levine. He's directed and produced films, including the 30 for 30 documentary This Is What They Want on Jimmy Connors, where he let me play a small part, where his passion for tennis shone through. But Brian started out in the music business, discovering artists and producing records. Well, Brian, I have a passion for television i have a passion for music put them together i could very easily geek out on this topic with you since you are an authority in both but thank you for making time this will be a lot of fun
1: i you know chris i i just want to say uh getting to do this kind of thing with a friend makes it so much better you're obviously a top quality broadcaster and uh, uh, as uh, jay bill has said like the most prepared person in the world but the truth is dude just getting one of the drags of of you know, COVID is you don't real. you know, you don't get to see your friends. And um, you and I have known each other a really long time. Uh, I've been friends with your wife, Jennifer, since we were kids. And uh, so it's just great. You're one of my favorite people to talk to. And, and it's great just to get to riff out with you on whatever you want to talk about. So thanks for inviting me to do this. It gives us a, a great excuse to get to hang out in a time where it's difficult to hang out.
0: Likewise, we have, if we have to schedule a podcast, that's what it takes. I'm, I'm happy to do it. That's what's so cool. That's why you're the perfect guest on this topic, because you've you've lived two lives: the music world and the writing world, the TV world, yeah. and they come together really in billions. And I want to definitely get to your brilliant show and how you use music in that show. But we were talking, Jen and I. I think maybe starting with with the startup shows. You know, the the, the TV theme song, which is if not extinct now, is certainly in danger. But we were growing up. I mean, they would allow an enormous percentage of the show, a twenty two minute sitcom. We have a two-minute theme song. Remember remember the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which I guess Will Smith and and DJ Jazzy Jeff wrote in about 15 minutes? It it was a two-minute long theme song for 22 minutes of content. Gilligan's Island telling the whole story, the whole backstory before they get to the TV show. But people have such powerful memories of of those theme songs. And some of those became breakout pop hits, aside from the show.
1: What's amazing about that, though, and the utility of that, I think, is the moment you hear one of those theme songs, you are connected, emotionally. is the power of music. And I know you wanna talk about this, but and, and I do too. Music, uh, like smell in a way, is one of those things because we don't process it intellectually. Like if you're reading or watching something, you're feeling it emotionally, but you're also processing the story intellectually somehow. But what you taste or smell or listen to musically you're you're experiencing i think differently uh you're leading with your emotions always and and so i think those people who created those tv shows back then were so smart in that that time spent uh the time spent having you exposing you to that music with those images that they would put to it bonded you to the show you know think about the cheers theme song which is one of the greatest ever, which just, everybody knows your name, just brings you right into that show, uh, the Great American Hero. Or, you know, my favorite of all time is Welcome Back. And, and you know, that was my favorite show as a kid. And, and, and uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. Sure.
2: Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome back.
1: Same old place that you laughed about. And, you know, I guess you and I, we were eight years old or 10 years old when that show was on the air. And um, that theme song, w- you know, written by one of the greatest songwriters, John Sebastian, also wrote Do You Believe in Magic and A Summer in the City and all that stuff with Love and Spoonful. And I had the extra thing on my dad worked with him in that band, but not then, you know, not on, on, on Cotter. but But that song was like such a great song. And then... The show sort of what the song was about tied into the show, and it just connected you to all that night. I don't think it's a coincidence that Travolta starred in that show, which which along with Gabe Kaplan, which which had that song, and, and then the next thing Travolta did was a movie, but that m- the music in that movie, you know, when you meet him in that movie, he's walking to staying alive. And you, John Travolta, part of why we relate to him and have for so many years is the way that the music was deeply connected with how we think about him.
0: No doubt. I want to circle back to that. You talked about the, almost the visceral reaction you get when you hear the first few bars of a TV theme song that you you connect with. I mean, I mean you could go all the way back to when I was a kid, remember the cartoon Batman and the theme song was literally one lyric. It was just Batman sung by a chorus over and over again at, at various pitches but the yeah. minute you heard that kind of bat swirl at the beginning of it, I mean, and they, they ended up keeping, I think, the same theme for the live action show that they used for the cartoon. But I mean, that is the as a, as a song, it's nonsensical, but you still have that reaction to it. It gets you ready for the show.
1: Yeah, man, that is the. Power. I mean, think about NYPD Blues theme song, mm-hmm. uh, which is just which is music, right? Not and and uh, or West Wing. I mean, a lot. You know, when you think about why West Wing works so well, that soaring thing. A lot of people I know. Have that song as their ringtone, or had that as a ringtone for a long time because of what it made them feel, which is like they stood for something.
0: You said something really smart that I'd never thought about, but the different ways that you're experiencing things intellectually, which you think the, the the pictures, the visuals that you see in a television show or a film are processed in the brain totally differently than the way that we take in music emotionally. And perhaps that's why the, the marriage between the two can create such power. I, I think that w- one of the reasons why this topic fascinates me, Brian, is because when it's brilliantly done on a TV show like yourself or, or a movie, the the power of that scene is just burned into your brain in a different way than if you just took it in without the music.
1: I could play you a scene from one of my shows or anybody's show. I could play you uh, and if we just watch the scene, uh, uh, someone's sitting there and a camera's pushing in on them and there's no score, no music playing, you're asking yourself, some, what's happening? What am I being told? What, the moment that I put the right, and, and if I put one kind of track, you would feel one way and another kind of track, you'd feel another way. And then when I found the right track, you would feel exactly the way the story wants you to feel. Um, and I've seen it over and over again. It's why David and I, my, my creative partner, David Levine and I spend so much time thinking about the music in our show, but we were talking this morning about the crown. I don't know if you and Jen, how far into mm-hmm. the crown you are. I love that show. And Amy and I were watching episode five. No, I think, uh, sorry, earlier in the season, this was episode three, maybe. Um, I'm not going to spoil the show, but a bad thing happens to an older character and, uh, but right before that, for like the three minutes before, you see some scenes that are very prosaic scenes, like where just people are doing very mundane things. But there's this music building as we cut from uh, scene to scene to scene. And, and Amy and I looked at each other on, our, on, our, on the couch and we were like, what the fuck is going on here? Because it was building in a way that that just let us know. And it was the way it was cut too. But But the music was pushing in a way where it was like, Okay, something is about to happen here. And it wasn't pushed so much because if you use that, do that badly, you as the viewer get annoyed and tired with it. But if you do it right, suddenly you start feeling in your body a question before your brain even asks the question. The composer and the creator of that show and maybe the director of that episode, maybe not, it depends how they work their show. They're spending so much time to figure out what that music should be. So when they first cut that together, when it's first written, probably the music is indicated. Then when they first cut that episode together before the composer's written that part, they've used other score music that either they have from their show or that comes from some other movie or television show that creates that feeling. And the editor and the Peter Morgan, the creator have used it as a way to indicate to the composer what the composer should be thinking about. Then the composer takes that away and proposes an idea, an almost fully fleshed out, but not quite fully fleshed out idea. And then they will go back and forth. They will they will watch the scene together. They will talk it through. They will talk about, are we pushing this too far? Are we feeling too much? and And they will spend so much time to get that three minutes of music right. That could take You know, if the person nails it right away, uh, you know, it could take an afternoon, but it could take four weeks to get that right. Um, Just that little bit
0: right. I loved hearing how Brian described how much thought and energy goes into all of those musical choices. Now, when a show or a film uses a recognizable piece of music, a well-known tune, the slang for that is called needle drop goes back to the old days of the vinyl records. Producers pay a fee to use that music, and Billions, like a lot of my all-time favorite TV shows, does a great job at choosing popular songs, making them a focal point of a scene. Sometimes that'll come in later, but
1: very often it will come in at the script stage. Like, I write listening to music most of the time, and often I can't write the scene until I know what music I want to be playing, or what vibe I want the music to have in that given episode. And so, like uh, the 11th episode of the second season, which is certainly one of the five best episodes of Billions, even the Losers figures very heavily. And I remember writing the outline of that episode just in the very beginning of thinking about it. And I put that song down. I remember sending the page to Dave and being like, even the Losers. And that ends up playing throughout the whole episode. And it helped write the thing, understanding that we were going to be going to that song and what that song said, and the way we were going to be able to ch- change your perception of who the loser was throughout the whole episode, was that that was just baked right into the song. And there've been many times where we've had the idea for um, a song and the way a song is going to land in an episode. And we've built a bunch of stuff around that. And I've talked to friends who do this, and. There are a few friends of mine who are as serious about music as I am and as obsessed, you know, just as obsessed with music as I am. And they, too, sometimes will build things around the song from a long way out. I mean, that's the thing, Chris. If you get to do this stuff, and I'm sure it's the same with David Chase. I know it is in The Sopranos and Matt Weiner um, on, on, on his show. Um, Mad Men. Y- you are lucky enough, if you're lucky enough to get to mm-hmm. make stuff like this, you want every moment to just be have maximum emotional impact and you wanna empty the toolkit. You, know, you just wanna leave it all out there and, and you wanna just put every last bit of thought, meaning, effort into it and your record collection is just about the best weapon you have once you've cast it correctly with an incredible group of actors and you know you've the best crafts people at every post, the last tool you have, the thing at the end is your record collection and your composer's score. And those are unbelievably valuable tools and, and we just try to get the most we can out of them.
0: I love you describing how much thought and rethought goes into this, how you, 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 you're convinced it's the right song. But then you mull it over and you know that that can't be here's another song. And you finally circle back around. But that, that must be um, some agonizing choices because you do have so many references and you have so much so much knowledge and such a, a massive collection. Um, it, it sounds kind of excruciating, but I guess in the end, you, you feel like you've made the right choice when you see it all put together. There's a kind of magic and it has an enduring quality when, it, when you get it right.
1: And I remember when you were prepping to go do World Cup. Uh, I remember spending time with you around that time and talking to you a decent amount during that. And I just remember you just didn't want the feeling that if you'd done another half hour of prep, you'd have had something that because you didn't, you didn't. And you just wanted to make sure, look, you're representing, you know, we're covering this event. We're covering it in a certain way. It mattered to you so much. You know that you weren't born into a soccer. You were like, I have to give this everything I have because the thought of being there and someone makes a pass that you could have referenced a pass that happened 20 years before and you missed it would have driven you crazy. Right. And so it's the same thing. You know, you're sitting there and you could settle, but you just, this stuff lasts, man. And you just can't settle. I, and that's how we approach it. I never want to be at a place where I'm willing to settle for a shot uh, and edit a, a piece of music that isn't exactly right. When I'm having a hard time editing a show, I can walk around for two weeks in a bad mood. There's no reason to be in a bad mood in life, but when I can't find the solution, and that could be what song should play over these three scenes. If I can't solve it, man, it drives me truly nuts. Like I will walk around uh, uh, the city usually, not you know, not taking such long walks now in the world of COVID, but I would walk around for hours. Uh, just in a funk, like letting it roll through my brain and, and watching the show, waking up early in the morning, can't sleep at night. And then suddenly, you know, you wake up and and because you know you, you you've allowed it to marinate, suddenly you wake up and uh, it's gonna be this song, and this is the order of the scenes, and and we're gonna cut to that shot of his face, and then and then it it makes sense. But you know, you choose this life because you're obsessed with this stuff. And, and I think that's what I was, you know, if we go back to the beginning. You know, you're young and you engage in these things and then certain things stay with you and certain things don't. And for whatever reason, this idea of telling stories in this way has such a hold on me. And and I guess in making television and films, you're able to use all of it. You You're able to use stuff that activates the intellect. You're able to use stuff that activates the emotions, and it can all come together to have an effect that's sort of greater than the parts. And it's so stirring to the emotions. It's stirring to make it, and then when it lands the right way, I mean, you know, it's amazing, right?
0: One classic show where the music choices landed perfectly so often, Miami Vice, taking you back to the mid to late 80s. If you watched it then, I encourage you to rewatch it. If you were too young, seek it out on streaming because that show, the way it was shot, the way it was edited, and the way it used music was like nothing else on television. Even though it only ran five years, it has influenced the way that so many of our favorite TV shows since then have used music.
1: I remember when Smuggler's Blues was on that show <laughs> and... Uh, now it's probably cheesy in a way, Glenn Fry playing that guy and then that song. But at the time, I was so into it and the meta aspect of it that that, that Glenn Fry's playing that guy. And you could feel Michael Mann having so much fun, right? Smugglers Blues is playing, Glenn Fry's playing this drug smuggler. Glenn Fry is in the Eagles, who were known for losing their minds to cocaine and the, the whole marriage of that was just fantastic in a show that was all about that stuff. Right? Then, so, then
0: they would get yeah. artists in the show, right? They would they would yeah. all sorts of artists walk through that show with cameos. I mean, it was a... It was totally.
1: A- <laughs> so that stuff's incredibly great um, and was really important in that it changed the way people thought about the use of music in television shows.
0: I can think of specific episodes, Brian. There, there's a song by Public Image Limited where they basically had... Two lines of lyrics. This is what you want. This is what you get. Right. Just repeated, like in pulverizing redundancy. But each each time they say, just it built. It was at the end of an episode where they reveal something that's actually pretty grisly. It was not a happy ending episode. Right. And it just it built to this crescendo, and it took forever. Like you, maybe in modern pacing, you wouldn't do it that way. But it, it it seemed to take forever and the tension just kept building and building. Remember, the minute boom it goes to black, that episode ends go. I don't know if I've ever quite seen anything like that. I before. agree with I you. That I agree with you. It was that powerful
1: that show and the way that they use music. And then look, the Sopranos, right from the and there's so many great musical moments, of Sopranos, but man, I mean, you just cannot underestimate the power of the theme song of the Sopranos. I mean, talk about something that just immediate, if I put that on right now, it would change your state. Your state would just change yep. if we put the Sopranos theme song on.
0: But all you had, you hear the first jingle and you woke up this morning, got yourself a gun. But but how does it come to pass that that is seen as a genius choice? That song was written about a woman who I think she killed her husband. It's a female empowerment song and nothing to do with gangsters, right? right? But, but you put that that song I get I get got goosebumps just thinking about that because that's yes. how much The Sopranos meant, you know.
1: No, to me too, man. And 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 if you think of like, yes, David Chase used Bob Dylan's songs. Great. He used great great songs in it to incredible effect. But right from the beginning, got myself a gun. You are in the feeling of the track too, which works like score as Tony's driving and beginning his day through that toll booth. Um, you are locked in, man. And you're locked in and identified with Tony and it just starts you going. So that's another great one. And I think Mad Men, even mm-hmm. though he didn't do it all the time, I mean, that um, that French song that she sings, Zuby Zuby zoo, Zoo" or whatever, yeah. you know, I mean, talk about a moment that the world stops spinning and every person watching television. And I think a lot of people watch that in real time. Not uh, you know, everybody is... Just completely glued to it. Um, so I think those are three examples of shows that have used music incredibly well. I,
0: I was thinking about this last night and thinking about moments where, and you brought it up, a song seems to have nothing to do stylistically, lyrically with what's going on on screen, but somehow the power together of that, when you think about Reservoir Dogs and Tarantino. Yeah, man. You know, I mean, Michael Madsen is, is, is torturing a yeah. cop and cutting an ear off, and here comes you know, Steeler's Wheel, you know, Clowns to the Left of Me, and yet you, you put a, a very kind of light, bouncy song with a grisly scene that it's so bad the camera even moves off. He, he won't even show you what's going on in the scene, and here comes this light song that's playing on, on a, on a boombox. I mean, that's inspired.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that song... Uh, And then in the next movie, you know, girl, you'll be a woman soon that Tarantino plays. So, so yeah, Quentin, of course, Scorsese and Cameron, for me and Cameron Crowe all have used music in a way that is so additive to what's going on. I mean, there's, you know, go watch Goodfellas and every moment is scored with a needle drop and it's just an amazing um, uh, achievement. And then, you know not just almost from I mean, Jeremy between Jeremy Maguire and almost famous you're, you you know Cameron Crowe was in sort of what I think of like the sweet spot of his professional life so far uh, the music is used as a way to connect you to these characters in their journey and and again that's what David Chase did also and, and and that's what that's what that's what we're all trying our best to do
0: In Billions, Brian and David Levine have used their extensive knowledge of music and large record collections to incorporate lots of music from emerging or lesser-known artists. I love their use of the Sturgill Simpson song, Remember to Breathe, an ominous tune that just really creates a powerful moment in the recent season. But they've also used music from some of the all-time greats like Led Zeppelin, U2, Metallica, Bruce Springsteen, and Neil Young's tune, Old Man.
1: But I remember we wrote, Dave and I wrote Neil Young through his people and, and because it came back to us like, Neil hasn't given permission yet for this one. Um, they're thinking about it. And so we wrote him and said, okay, here's why Old Man is the right, here's what we're doing with the song. Here's the message we're trying to create. And I will always tell the truth because yes, the idea that Neil Young would be upset at the usage. Someone I admire, you know, that I think, what I think about him would kill me, right? So you're right, Neil Young, this note, and and then the next day it was like, we got approved. And same with Bruce, you know. I didn't know that Bruce liked the show or watched the show, but when Dave and I had that Atlantic City idea, which, you know, could be my very favorite thing we've ever done in a way, um, we had to send Bruce the pages of the script and then we got word back that he'd read it by a pool uh, somewhere on a vacation. He was on vacation and they were they were sending him the pages and printing them out at the front desk and running them out to him <laughs> at the pool. And so we were getting visual. kind of a, a real time uh, readout on that. And then word came back to us that Bruce loved it and we should do it. And then um, my kids make fun of me when I mentioned the fact that I got to have dinner with him last year because it was such a big deal to me. I can't. It took me about a month and a half or two months after to actually process it enough that it really happened to deal with it. But then now that I know it happened, it's such a monumental event in my life. I mean, you know, Chris, we've been lucky enough because what we do to meet so many people and you have to get to a place where it doesn't affect you. But having dinner with just Bruce and one other person is really the kind of thing that affects you. And, um, and when he told me that he loves the show, he said, I mean, Patty and I, we watch the show every Sunday night. And 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 he's like we watch it in real time. And then the thought that Bruce watches our show on a Sunday nights like blew my mind. And he loved the way we used Atlantic City. And so yes, of course of course, man, that's I mean, you couldn't imagine that. I remember
0: you could just write him into the show. That that way you, you wrote Metallica into the show. We're we're both big yes. Metallica fans, so you, you you you're guaranteed to hang out with them if you write them into the show and make 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 yes, Bobby yeah, Axelrod jetting to going, a concert part of the plot. <laughs>
1: When I was a young man and I was in the record business, I worked with them a little bit and I got to go on the road with them. And I've stayed close with their managers for, I'm 54 since I'm 22. So that was a question of being able to, you know, they're one of my favorite bands of all time, but I that kind of thing. is hard to pull off with a band. They were perfect for it. And they were, I think the fact that we had a long relationship really helped them have the faith that we were going to do right by them. And again, that's another example. We're going to show Metallica what we want to do, you know, very deep, a lot of detail in that kind of situation. But yes, that was so important to Axe's character, right? He's wearing the Metallica shirt in in the second episode of the first season. And then in episode four, they show up and then in episode six, we put one, it's like that, that signal to the viewer of the show, the way that music was going to be so important. And, and that's why I went. And also that came from real life. Uh, Uh, a a really wealthy money guy told us the story of taking his high school friends like that to see a band, not Metallica, a different band. But he told us this whole story of flying in backstage at Austin city limits and this whole way that he did it. And and it, or the other festival in Austin.
0: Oh, it was totally believable. That's the kind of thing he would do. I mean, it didn't seem out of place. I was just amused because you got Metallica to go along with it. You got to, you got to write them in and hang out with it. That's the fun part of having a show, but but it didn't, it wasn't weird in the plot at all. I mean, that's the point.
1: No, and having James be there that day, so I still have this badge from when I was on the road with them as a 22-year-old. I've saved it. And I got to show, and and, and back then, if you were with the band, you got a laminate that was a the, the, basically only the band and very few people had this one where you had to take a very specific kind of picture. And I did, and I have that thing still. I've saved it. Amy saved it for me all these years. And so I took it, and I was like, because I didn't know, if I knew Lars had connected it, but I didn't know if James connect connected. And I remember showing that to James and him just like, it was a pretty emotional moment for all of us, like all these years later, you know, to have uh, the, this kid who kind of worked on the road with them is now making the show and they're here being in the show I mean, with us. It was, the, it was very heavy, Chris. Really the fact crazy. that
0: Lars Ulrich's dad, Torben, was a tennis player and Lars grew up wanting to play tennis as a tennis fan and comes around to the events. I've gotten to meet him that way. is it, so cool because I can, I can then geek out and have, have my access to Metallica and see the shows. It's just, that's, that's priceless. You just it is, to it's totally body. priceless. I do listen to new music. I do listen to to current music, but I'm not sure that it can have the same power as some of the songs we're talking about just because you you live a life with this music. But is there still music, a lot of it, being written today that works as well with what we're talking about oh
1: yeah i mean you just brought up remember to breathe by sturgill like that came out a year before we six months before we used Mm -hmm. it yes is there Uh, as much
0: of it though when so much of it is listen so much of it is about just a single download and it's not we we could we could talk forever about how music's changed and and the economic model has changed and the artistic model has changed but of course is there still great stuff whether it's in hip-hop or some other genre that's that's Oh, as yeah, applicable totally. as anything?
1: Yes. I mean, we used a Vince Staples song in in uh, season two, episode seven that um, we just love. Yeah, man, I, I, I think that, sorry, season three, episode seven. I think that um, there's totally vital, vibrant music being made now. And we love being able to use new music or newer music that has the same kind of impact. And so, yeah, I think that's a great opportunity, but you're correct that the, the music you listen to in your teens and early twenties is the music that has the greatest impact on you in general in your life. So yes, for, for me personally, a Velvet Underground song or a Lou Reed song or Bruce or Bob or R.E.M. are gonna, the replacements, they're gonna hit me in a certain way, but I'm not only thinking about how it's going to hit me. I'm thinking about how it's going to hit me and how it's going to hit the viewer. Plus, but then when when a song that it, a newer song has that effect, Chris, it's like that Josh Rader song, Homecoming, that ends season two, it, it, um, it really bowls you over uh, and introduces you to something new. And I think that's great too, because you don't have as many prior, Uh, associations to it. And so I think that that's also a great opportunity.
0: Cool. Well, we could go on forever and ever, but uh, you've been very generous with your time and this has been fun to kind of, you know, geek out with you and just kind of scratch the surface.
1: Chris, man, honestly, uh, you and Jen are the best, you know, Amy and I love you. And and, um, I love talking to you about this stuff. I could go on uh, forever too. Thanks for including me in the podcast. I love that you're doing it. And uh, I can't wait to see you soon.
0: Appreciate it. Yeah. I can't wait to see what lies ahead for Billions. We'll keep an eye out for the resumption of Season 5 and then Season 6 of Billions on Showtime. Also, check out Brian's excellent podcast, The Moment. He does superb interviews with a really fascinating range of guests. He's on Twitter and Instagram, at Brian Koppelman, K-O-P-P-E-L-M-A-N. Now, the artist's take on songs used in TV shows with Mike Mills, bassist and vocalist for the legendary R.E.M., I don't think you have to explain the monumental impact on modern music that R.E.M. has made since their very first single, Radio Free Europe, arrived in 1981. That's when I was just arriving to college, and from that moment, R.E.M.'s music became enormously important to me throughout my adult life and one of my all-time favorites. So it's been a thrill to hang out a bit and get to know Mike over the years. Typically, our conversations are focused more on the fortunes of his beloved Georgia Bulldogs than R.E.M.'s music. So this was a real treat for me, and will be for all fans of the band. So Mike, for those of us that don't write songs but love them, there's kind of a, a mystery to the process that has a magic attached to it. Notes and melodies come from somewhere combined with words and they create this form of artistic expression that really is unlike anything else in the way it affects people. And it has a, a an effect that can last for decades and it has an effect that's very personal. People have very different meanings for, for different songs. So Take us through that process for those that, that aren't gifted in that area.
2: <laughs> well, it, it's, uh, it's a strange thing. I mean the, when you talk about the process, you're, you're talking about everything from you know where do the songs come from? What's the muse, what's the inspiration, uh, all the way through to uh, production and overdubs and lyrics and all these other things that add up into into what the song becomes. But the main thing about it to me is that music, even with lyrics, but music allows you to inhabit the space. Music creates a place where you can walk in and have it mean what you think it means. Um, you know, one of the great things about REM and Michael's non-linear lyrics, especially for the first few records, was was that the, the magic was that people could apply themselves to it, could apply their own meaning and their own feeling to it. For example, if you go all the way back to Chronic Town, we had a song called Million. And you know i i don't know what michael was thinking i don't know that michael knew what michael was thinking but but i loved it because i got to form my own images and 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 meaning in my head and and that's what music does it leaves you that space now sometimes obviously music complements uh whatever you're already feeling you know if you're sad you may want to put on the blues or some classical or or you know whoever enhances or maybe dilutes your sadness a little bit and and there's space for that but I like the sort of uh, what a tabula rasa of some music. It's like you, if you haven't heard it, you listen to it, and then it becomes whatever you think it should be.
0: Does it feel mystical a little bit when, when, a, when a melody or something comes into you from somewhere, who knows what mental state you have to get into to achieve that? But when it just arrives in the head and you immediately know, hey, there is something here that may have lasting power.
2: It, it is. It is. It's a lightning bolt. Uh, sometimes. Uh, my favorite example of that is when we were making uh, "Automatic the people we were working on trying not to breathe. And uh, I, I knew there was a, a vocal part I needed to put in the chorus. So I sent everybody else out of the studio and Scott Litt and I, he sat in the control room and I went out in the, in the studio and worked on it. And I tried these different things, and none of them was really none of them were really you know nailing it, and I hit this the one thing that's on there now, and you know, Scott was 60 feet away, but we could both see in each other's eyes. that was it. That was the thing that the song needed, that it was the best thing I was going to be able to come up with for that, and we both knew it right at the time that it was it was the melody and the words, and everything was just right there. So um, you know you, you I live for moments when I make records. Uh, for me, it's all about moments. A lot of producers will tell you the same thing. I mean, it can be a great song from beginning to end, but what you really want to achieve is if you can have even one, but maybe more than one moment where it's just you get the goosebumps and it grabs you, that's when you've really done your job.
0: Well, thank you for not demystifying the process and making it seem like putting together a chair from Ikea, you know, put slot A into groove B, because I know there are aspects to making songs that are like that. But what, what fascinates me most is the inspiration and where it kind of where it comes from and the, the creative spark that leads all these other things. Because as you said, without that, you don't have much. Try Not to Breathe, by the way, is one of many REM tunes that are appropriate for the times. Um, yeah. <laughs> in, in title and theme.
2: <laughs> we, were, we were a little ahead of the time uh, without even knowing it. Yeah. I mean, obviously you want the mystery. I mean, sure. There is a certain amount of craft to it. Um, You know, you, you can't just rely on, on serendipity and things to fall out of the sky when you're trying to write a song. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you, you can have basic templates and still uh, have, you know, abstract and powerful moments that, that come from who knows where.
0: When you create a song, what is the, what is the sense of personal ownership or, or a, a very intimate personal meaning before it gets released to the world and heard by others?
2: Sometimes a song doesn't, you don't know right away how powerful it is. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you can go, wow, this is great and I know we've just written and recorded a, a tremendous song. Sometimes you, you don't really know that it's going to have any effect on people. I, I, I mean, I, the prime example, obviously for me, is losing my religion. I mean, you know, we said, oh, this is a pretty cool song. They were, uh, it's five minutes long. It doesn't really have a chorus. And the mandolin is the lead instrument. So that is not a recipe for a hit in any world. Um, But yet, you know, Warner Brothers was going to make it, they were going to make it the second single off the, off the, uh, or no, I think it was actually the first single was supposed to set up Shiny Happy People as the real hit, (laughs) but instead it just took off. And, And nobody saw that coming. You know, Warners didn't see it coming. We certainly didn't. So you just, you, you know, you create these little, you know, toy boats and you put them on the water and you, some of them, you know, sail far away and some of them just go right underneath. That was just a dream. That was just a dream. That's
0: When I mean, you create something that does feel personal and in some ways has been described as deliberately non-commercial and then it sends tens of millions and wins awards and is, is used um, in all kinds of films and TV shows. Um, what do you feel then? I mean, it's, it's gone beyond this little boat that you put in the water and it's drifted around the world uh, through the currents, you know?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's the thing is, once you release a song, it's not yours anymore. I mean, it belongs to everyone to a degree, and it's theirs to interpret, it's theirs to ignore it's theirs to listen to as much as or as little as they want to so um you know and then there are always misinterpretations, you know, the most famous one, the one I love uh which was one of our early hits it's not a love song in the real sense of that it's a it's a bitter song of of stalking uh you know not of stalking, but a kind of a rejection um and it's it's really dismissive, but unless you listen closely, you won't know that. so it was always really fun to do shows and and we start playing that song, and couples would put their arms around each other and hug each other and dance and kiss and it's like but but really what what the guy's saying he's telling the girl to piss off or the, whoever it is What do
0: you sing a simple prop to occupy my time that sort of tw- that turns the thing around one it gets,
2: it gets worse because the last line is another prop to occupy my time so I mean it it starts bad and gets worse. But, but
0: that's the kind know. of song that would be used in a film or a TV show because people would latch on to the one I love. And that, that's yes. what they want to latch on. And then then you find
2: out, wait a second, this has nothing to do with what you were trying to say. And that's fine. It's fun to be subversive. You know, I mean, it's really fun to sneak things in on people. There is a, uh, there is a word in Driver 8 that, you know, if people knew it was there, it would never get played on the radio. Or you know, not, not anybody listens to radio anymore. But but back in the day, it, it got played on the radio because nobody knew what Michael was saying. And there there is a word that would have completely disqualified it. So um, it's fun to be subversive. It's fun to sneak things in on people, and and that's fine. Music can be music should be subversive in some ways. Um, you know, the '60s were all about subversion, and and well, you know, and they served it served a great purpose. I mean, it mobilized young people to basically end the Vietnam War. And that's, that was a pretty powerful subversion right there.
0: When someone has a different use for music and there's few things less subversive maybe than a mainstream TV show. So let's back up. TVs, uh, movies that, that use songs, bands have to be paid for that. Bands have to give permission for that. What in general has been the REM philosophy when someone says, hey, we want to use one of your songs in our, our uh, picture or our TV show?
2: And well it depends on the song and it depends on the uh format um you know some songs of ours are we're a little more uh possessive and and guardian like of them i'm sorry the word is not uh coming to me but and some of them we care less about like for example everybody heards at this point um it, it belongs to the world. There, there aren't too many times we'll say no, if it's a good cause that wants to use everybody hurts. As a matter of fact, we just, uh, you know, and there's obviously always a fee involved. You don't, you don't give things away for free because you don't want to start. You can't have a bad precedent that way, but we just, uh, uh, worked out a deal with, with, uh, Jim Irsay and the Colts for the, Mike Cleats my cause to use everybody hurts. And we're happy to do that. This, that, is, that is a song of, is so universal that it in a way it belongs to everyone and Any anytime we can use it in a in a situation where it might help someone who 's having uh, depression or any sort of mental difficulties or emotional difficulties we 're happy to do that um, other songs uh, I want to stop you right board... there because that, that
0: 's that's, that's obviously a, a huge anthem for a lot of people. It, it has played an important role for millions of people really in the year of 2020 because of what we're all going through. And as you said, it's a cherished song for people that are in pain of all sorts. You guys though have allowed it to be used in some very comedic ways as well, which shows that there's a sense of humor about it and maybe a desire to make a couple bucks, but, but everybody hurts has been used in the office. It's been used in, 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 in all kinds of, of things and, and the yeah. ways that are, that are, I, I'm not, they're not mocking the theme, but it's not, it's not the sincere kind of pain that you're writing and singing about,
2: right? Well, well, you don't want to be too precious, you know. I mean, it, it, it isn't obviously. I mean, it's a very real, powerful song, and I have literally had people write me and tell me that it saved their lives, and and I'm thrilled about that. And I don't think it diminishes it in any way to use it in a in a comedic situation, uh, because because you you really you know, and you can't be too precious about it. And, and uh, R.E.M.'s sense of humor is kind of something that people have overlooked for years. We you know, we were seen as this really super serious band because we didn't smile in our pictures and we didn't cavort or gamble or do any of that kind of stuff. And, but we were really laughing and having a great time. And, uh and, and we certainly enjoy, uh you know, when our songs can get a laugh too, without, it doesn't ruin the impact to have it used in the office or some other silly place. It's still a very important song about reaching out when you need help.
0: Absolutely. And it's, it's, a plain but powerful song sung very plainly certainly by michael's standards and i think that it's very very um easy to grasp the meaning of that and it has it it, that will have power 50 100 years from now
2: yeah some some things you want to be clear about some things you want to be obtuse and nonlinear, but other things you know you this is what you're trying to say and you want to say it as as clearly as possible
0: i want to get back to the sense of humor because i think it is a very underappreciated aspect of of rem individually and collectively but, but one last thing on, on this song, political use is another way that artists' creations are, are taken and used in different ways besides TVs and movies. And Everybody Hurts was, was, I believe, used by Trump in a way to kind of poke fun at the Democratic Congress after, after a, a State of the Union speech, which I know that becomes a lightning rod issue for lots of bands to have their songs used in that way, in a very polarized
2: way. Well, it, it wasn't it wasn't Trump so much as it was a, a guy whose you know name will remain unsaid. Uh, in fact, I think Twitter shut him down for for the things he did. He made a bunch of memes, and he made a meme of uh, using that song and looking at the faces of the Democratic members of Congress during the State of the Union. And Trump retweeted it. Now the problem was he used. You know, there, there are there are all these rules about fair use and satire and, and, and the, all these legal uh, boundaries that you can't cross. And, and they, he crossed them. So we were able to shut it down. And we had I love it that we got Twitter to make Trump take it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, truly a high point of the career. But uh, but yeah, you, you, you can't. There are some things you can't stop people from doing. But if they cross a line, you can't absolutely shut it down. And uh, and that's your right. And it should be your right.
0: You guys have seen a line between creative uses of the music and then commercial uses where we're trying to sell a product. Let's put REM song to it. And there's been, as I understand, a lot more resistance to that.
2: We are at, at the time and have been consistently uninterested in selling our music to commercials. Um you know, I know it's the coin of the realm now, and and with with uh, with with less radio, uh, with, you know, with less terrestrial radio and with satellite radio not paying much of anything at all, uh, bands or artists are turning to commercials to get their music heard. I understand that. I don't like it, but I can't blame them or judge them for it. Um, plus, there's a ton of money being thrown your way about that, but but we've never been interested in that. Uh, we've always said no. The, the great story is that IBM really wanted uh, an R.M. song. We wouldn't sell it to them. And, and then, you know, there was, there was one situation. It wasn't IBM, but one guy called Bertus and was like, we want to buy this song for R.M. Put in our commercial. Burtis goes, well, they're, 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 not, they're not for sale. And the guy goes, I understand that, but what's the price? And Bertus says, well, there is no price. They're not for sale. And the guy says, I, I, I hear you. I understand it. But what's the figure? And it went on for five minutes, and Bruce like, there is no figure, and the guy just would not believe it. He could not believe that there wasn't a figure in which we would buckle. Um, IBM, and I don't mind calling them out on this, whatever ad agency did this, uh, they wanted an REM song, we wouldn't sell it to them. Well, they f- somebody found out that Superman was not our song, and we didn't own the publishing to it. So they went to the whoever owns the publishing, Gary Zekely, whoever Zeekly sold it to it, uh, and bought the rights and had someone else record it in a way that sounded a little bit like R.E.M. And they used that in their commercials. So we got all this grief from people about how could you sell Superman to IBM? It's like, it's not our version. It's not our song. We couldn't stop them. We didn't get any money. You know, and I, had, I wrote a ton of fan cards or postcards to fans just to explain that to them. If they're going to think that, you might as well take the seven or eight figures from... from well, I mean, <laughs> you know, yes, but no. it's... it's No, You in a way, you're right. But on the other hand, it's, it's like somebody's got to have some integrity around here. You guys have had,
0: in speaking with Burtis Downs, your manager, kind of a surprisingly liberal attitude about this. I say surprisingly because you do have the reputation of being a very earnest, serious band that takes your music very seriously and might want to maintain some sort of control over how it's seen by people and and how the meaning is interpreted. But you guys really have been, have been quite open to that. In his words, other forms of artistic expression, whether it's a TV show or a film or anything short of commercials, you guys are open to sort of lending, lending your genius to.
2: Well, thank you. And that's absolutely true. I mean, I remember, uh, one of my favorite, uh, memories as a kid was seeing the Standells on the Munster's. Uh, they were the Standells were playing in the Munsters house. And I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, so, you know, and get, so I don't know what if that did the Standells any good commercially, but I sure did like it. And I, and I think that sort of thing, if you can surprise people, I mean, I know it's TV, but but just just as a movie example, if you remember Diary of a Mad Housewife, I think Alice Cooper is playing. And, you know, it's at a club in that, in that movie. That's the sort of thing that we love to do. I mean, the little Easter eggs like that, uh, where you can sneak it in on people. Um, those you, show those
0: up in the, you show up in Homer Simpson's garage playing
2: End well, in, of the World. Highlight. I'll tell you the, the story about how that came about was was really fun. We were filming a video uh, at some warehouse in Brooklyn. And nearby, Mike Scully, uh, one of the executive producers of The Simpsons, was filming an NRBQ documentary. Uh, now Peter and I especially love NRBQ as does Mike Scully. So I ran into him in the hallway and we got to talking and he said, well, look, will you guys, you know, talk to me for my NRBQ documentary? I said, sure. If you put us on the Simpsons, (laughs) he, he said, okay. So that's, that's how we got on there. And, uh, and you know, and, and that's still you had, you had know, no intention of that actually happening, right? You're just Oh no, at... I was dead serious about oh, it. Oh, you thought you I, thought it might happen? Absolutely. I would that was a deal I was making. I said, Yes, we'll do the we'll do an interview for you for your NRBQ documentary, but you gotta put us on the Simpsons. Um, and that was, you know, that's a career highlight to, to be in there uh, uh, doing those doing the voiceover with a couple of folks from the cast. Uh, but and, you're kind it, of
0: the butt of the joke. You guys allowed yourselves to be Kind of your your reputation for embracing environmental causes. He was Homer was kind of making fun of that, and then Michael oh, ends yeah. up you're, very mad in the scene. So so you weren't you weren't averse to sort of
2: poking fun at yourselves there. You have to if if you'd say the trouble is, uh, you know, rock and roll is littered with the carcasses of, of musicians who took themselves too seriously. It's 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 off putting. It's distasteful. Uh, it's like. You know, Peter used to say this thing, and I don't, it's not entirely true, but to a point it is, it's like rock and roll is a joke, and if you don't get the joke, then you're the butt of the joke. But, you know, and I believe that, but I also believe that rock and roll can save your life, it, literally. And so it's it's one of those things that that is, in a way, one of the most important things in the world, and in a way is not one of the most important things in the world. And you have to be able to embrace both sides of that coin to really understand it.
0: Is there a separation when you create the music and then you appear in, in shows like The Simpsons? And we haven't even gotten into Sesame Street yet when you guys are, are doing a, a kind of an altered version of, of Shiny Happy People, which is a very unexpected REM pop-up at that time. I mean, it, it's, those are the arenas when you can sort of, hey, we get it. We are in on the joke. We're not the butt of it.
2: Absolutely. And, and again, that also depends on the song. I mean, Shiny Happy People was a song. It was basically written for kids. It's like Stand. You know, people go, oh, those are stupid, silly R.E.M. songs. Well, yeah, they're for children. You know, <laughs> I mean, adults can enjoy them, too, but they're primarily aimed at kids. Look at the videos. You know, those are, you know, those are to appeal to children, and that's and that's great. So why the heck not do Furry Happy Monsters on Sesame Street, which was, I think, still one of the most popular things we ever did. I get people still coming up to me on the street saying how much they still watch that with their kids, as, even as their and their kids – are showing it for their kids. Now, you know, it's, it's just, it, it was such a, it had such a long life. It's incredible.
0: What was that like the, the, the recording of that? Cause that is, it's been viewed by tens of millions of people on, on, it's been viewed by tens of millions of people on, on YouTube. What was the story behind that little three minute piece of your life? Or was it three hours of your life?
2: It was just a few hours. I was, uh, you know, I won't lie, I was a little hungover uh, that day, (laughs) which which certainly added an air of unreality to it. When you walk into this giant warehouse, and there hanging up in the far, far corner all by himself was the Snuffleupagus, which was a little sad and strange. But the main thing about it was I said, okay, I am not going to talk to these puppets like they're people. I'm not going to do it. And you can't help it. Within within 60 seconds of looking down at the puppet next to me, I'm trying to talk to the guy who's below the bleachers working the puppet. You can't do it. You have to end up talking to the puppet. There's just no way around it. Um, and, and I was thrilled to do it. It's like, okay, be a child. Let let your inner child out and, and just enjoy this. And then that's what we did.
0: I mean, it's a very fun experience in the moment. It's had, it had lasting power. Do you ever run into fans and say that that really disappointed me? You guys are supposed to be serious artists, and here here you are in Sesame Street. What are you doing?
2: No, no one has ever said that to me because truly, our fans, our real fans, know that it's funny. You you can say it's like I'm very serious about what I do, but I don't take it seriously. And those things are not uh, mutually exclusive. You can you can have both of those things in your hand at the same time. So you know, it just made perfect sense to to uh, to to reach out and play that song for, you know, we had kids, you know, the people at the record company had kids. Everybody has, you know, everybody that has kids has seen Sesame Street just about. And, and, and why not, you know, become part of that universality.
0: Now, shiny happy people is a song that if you believe what you guys have said over the years in interviews is not your favorite tune. Um, you don't, you don't play it very much. You didn't play it very much in, in concert, but because it has that easy-to-grab theme, because it was very catchy, maybe because it was intended to be consumed by kids, it has a, a, a real connection with people on some level, and it's been used a lot. I don't know if you know that it was in the early version of Friends, before they settled on the song by the Rembrandts as their theme, Shining Happy People might have become the theme song for Friends.
2: I've read a, a few things about that. That I, I think it was really more a placekeeper uh, at the time, and what they wanted was a song like "Shiny Happy People." I don't know that they actually wanted that that song. What I've read is that they told the Rembrandts to write a song kind of like that, uh, or, you know, with the same kind of bouncy, up-tempo feel—not to sound like "Shiny Happy People," but to have that same impact. Um,
0: would you have let them use that as as the Friends theme song, which obviously a TV show that lives forever if they'd
2: wanted to? I think we probably would have said yes to that. Yeah, I think, uh, I, think I wish that they had asked us for that, but I don't believe they did. Um, but the thing about Shining Happy People, we don't hate that song. It's a great song. Um, it, it's not the song that I want on my tombstone, you know, but... Uh, it's a really great song. And like I said, it's aimed more for kids. And one of the reasons we didn't play it live is because without Kate, it's just not that much of a. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not, not that much fun. And since we weren't touring with Kate Pearson, we just didn't play it live.
0: Fair, Plus, point, fair point. point.
2: You know, it was, it, again, it is the sort of sort of thing that we're not unproud of, but neither do we want that front and center every time we talk about it.
0: No, I think you left it off the first greatest hits album, but that's, I think it made, <laughs> it, on, it, made it on a later one.
2: That was probably not an oversight. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I want to circle back. You, you talked about losing my religion, which became um, your best known and biggest selling song. And, and one really important use of that in television was the 90210 Brenda and Dylan breakup. It's playing on the radio in their car. They're having this heavy conversation, Mike. I mean, they're talking about all kinds of things like, you know, teen pregnancy, And fidelity, and these important life lessons. The song is is playing full, then it's kind of playing in the background, then it kind of comes back at the end for that series, which was white hot at the time. It's one of the most pivotal scenes in the history of the series, and now sort of that song is is attached to it. What was your reaction when when you heard about it and then saw how they used that?
2: Well, to be honest, I didn't watch that show, so it. I mean, I knew it was hugely popular, but I just never saw it. I mean, you know, obviously I see a few snippets of it as I flip through the channels, but I never sat down and watched it. So I, I knew it was a hugely popular show and I knew it would probably make a big deal to have it on there. Uh, but the emotional impact of it was lost on me because I wasn't invested in the, in the characters or the TV show. However, uh, I knew it was a big deal. I mean, I know ratings when I see them and, and I, that show had them. So we were thrilled to get it on there. Um, but again, that, that all ties into the, to the being a part of pop culture you know to to be in something that you know somebody may see it in 20 years and go oh wow that's really cool uh or or you know just just to to mix the culture of, of movies and television and music um they're all related and and I and I like blending them when you know when it makes sense
0: it's amazing the landscape has changed so much but there's so many usages for songs now that they do have a second and third and even a fourth life sometimes when people become aware of them that were way too young to hear them the first time. Have you ever come across some usage when you weren't, "Eh, I'm not not thrilled by the way that that's been interpreted, either the visual images it's been married to or or the way it's used in the plot. Is there any example when you think, Ah, yeah. okay, we did it. We got to put our money where our mouth is, but I'd rather not see our song kind of used that way.
2: I was a little ambivalent about Independence Day. I think I End think of the World is in Independence Day. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big, dumb, blockbuster movies are... They're a little too lowest common denominator sometimes for feeling really good about it. On the other hand, uh, it, it worked. It fit. Uh, the money wasn't bad. I won't lie about that. Um, but, but again, it, it's a huge movie. A lot of people were going to see that movie and... At that point, it's not about selling the music; it's just about having it heard. You know, being a part of the zeitgeist or whatever is 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 nice. And um, I don't know. There are a lot of good things that come of that. You're you're part of the culture. It means you're going to last longer. More people will have heard of you. It gives you more freedom to do other things. Um, and you know. And again, I just like the fact that in ten years, somebody's going to watch. Uh, Independence Day and go, holy crap! There's an REM song, uh, or what is that song? I gotta go find that song. It's it's just it's it's a little Easter egg that sneaks up on people sometimes.
0: That's well, another song, obviously, that's been downloaded and listened to a lot because of what we're going through. But it's pretty amazing that one artistic creation, there that's few minutes long, could be used from Independence Day to Big Bang Theory to the film Buffy the Vampire Slayer. To, I mean, the, the Simpsons we talked about that's that that's one piece of music interpreted that many different ways.
2: Yeah. Oh, and that's, and that's the, the, the great thing about music is y- you can, it, it means what you think it means. You, personally, you, you, Chris Fowler, me, Mike Mills, you, Joe Sixpack, it doesn't matter. Uh, it means exactly what you think it means. And again, the Michael, some of Michael's non-linearity of his lyrics is really great because it leaves that room for interpretation.
0: These songs we've talked about so far are the easy ones. They're the songs that everybody knows. I mean, they're a part of the soundtrack of the last 30, 40 years. When you when you have a, a deeper cut, a uh, cut that maybe the real hardcore R.E.M. fans appreciate, and it shows up in a usage. I mean, Country Feedback is a song that comes to mind because it's it's not commercial, but it's it's a popular song for R.E.M. fans, and that's also sort of been used in some ways too. Do you—is that a— sort of an extra level of appreciation because somebody has dug deeper and somebody has found something that maybe has um, had, had less commercial success, but, but a stronger personal bond.
2: Yeah, I mean, low-hanging fruit is great and we're happy to have people nibble on that all they want. But uh, when, you, when you've done something that is explicitly non-commercial like country feedback, uh, to have that uh, register uh, and resonate with people enough to where they want to use it it, in their own creative project, um, that's very rewarding. And, 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 the fact that it does work in some of those situations, uh, it, it's kind of blows my mind. It's just the power of music to, to enhance, uh, situations that you might not expect it to. Um, it, it's just amazing how, how much music can do, uh, in situations where you just wouldn't see it coming. How do you
0: explain the kind of the marriage of of music and pictures, which I'm told I'm no expert in how our brain processes this, but it made sense when it was explained to me that music is experienced in a very emotional level, visual images in a a different place of the brain, but you put them together and the sum is greater than the parts. You have a a piece
2: of art
0: that is two different mediums combined, but now has a power that, that is just embedded in your brain once you see it.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you watch, if you watch a film without the music, it's like, you know, you'll go, you, you'll you'll appreciate it on a technical level. You go, wow, that's a nice piece of filmmaking. So they're doing a good job, good acting. But you add the music to it, and it and it's exponential. It takes it to a whole other level because music is is so abstract. Um, you know, visual, it's right there. You you can't really interpret it any other way than it is because there it is. Music is is entirely up to you how you interpret it. And it's malleable in the sense that the same piece of music might work on a, uh, a TV show where one thing is happening, but it might also work in a film where something completely different is happening um, be, because that's just the nature of music. It, 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 it the listener is able to I- inhabit it in whatever way he feels, he or she feels. So um, that's why it works in, in different situations.
0: Yeah, it's fun when something completely unexpected or on the surface inappropriate pops up. I don't know what TV shows uh, that you cherished or watched that, that use mu- music in a certain way. But, you know, to have the Sopranos' last frames be Don't Stop Believin', uh, the, the Journey song many people found incongruous, and there are plenty of examples of that where all of a sudden here comes a song that you would never imagine would be appropriate to that theme or that moment, but somehow it, it just it takes it in another direction and makes it
2: work. Exactly. And, and you would never have thought that. Well, somebody thought it, but, but, but the idea is that it is a surprise and it's like, well, that's not working. And then later you go, OK, I, I'm still thinking about it. It's still working. So it's good to confound expectations. It's good to keep the mind open to new possibilities. Like I said, you just can't be too precious about your music. You know, rock and roll is, is it's, it's for the individual, but it's also for the masses if they want it. And so you put it out there and, and see, you know, put the bait out there and see who bites. I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed having our music in all these weird cultural spaces that were not necessarily, you know, just like getting it on rock and roll radio. To get it other places is, it's kind of satisfying that it, that it reaches out in places that are not just tailored for a specific type of fan. It feels good to see that other people might enjoy it as well instead of the ones that it was purely crafted for.
0: Mike, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun and uh, and we'll we'll keep looking for Aria music to pop up in in unexpected and and interesting and and entertaining ways.
2: You never know. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it.
0: And I hope you enjoyed that dive into music and TV. I certainly did. Very grateful to my friends Mike Mills and Brian Koppelman and thankful that Brian suggested Mike as a guest. If you're like me, you now have more awareness and appreciation for the energy and the skill that goes into a TV show's use of music. If you'd like to follow Mike on Twitter, it's M underscore Millsy, M-I-L-L-S-E-Y. It's a nickname. Big thanks to R.E.M.'s manager, Burris Towns, Team R.E.M., and Universal Music for clearing the song clips. As always, thanks to co-executive producer Jennifer Dempster and producer Jason Weichel. All of us would appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the podcast, rate, and review it. It really does help. If you have any comments or ideas on episodes or anything else, you can DM me on my Instagram at Chris Fowler. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon.